0: I went to an open day of art school and everybody was super colorful and flashing beside me on roller skates in colorful dresses. And I was this really shy girl from this side of the Netherlands, literally dressed in gray. And I thought, no, (laughs) (laughs) this is way too scary for me.
1: Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain, with a new episode that I think you will like very much. I'm speaking today with Ellen Festers, an Utrecht-based sketcher, illustrator, and founder of her own Illustration Academy. Ellen studied psychology, then practiced as a psychologist, then taught psychology, before pursuing a long-time dream to study illustration. We talk about this interesting journey of her life, of which the latest chapter is a mission to teach art and illustration at her own academy, the Fenster Academy. Ellen tells me about design thinking, and her design thinking approach to life and her career. In case you have not heard of it, I won't spoil it just yet. But it made me think of something I studied as a control systems engineer. It's a process called black box system identification. When you're working with a system that you do not know the insides of, you can think of an unknown machine as a black box, or a piece of software code as a black box, or a natural system as a black box, or even your life as a black box. What does this box do? What is it meant to do? What is the best way to use it? The idea of system identification is to send different kinds of input into the box, read the outputs, and try to judge based on that how this system works. Basically, you have to try different things. You have to be flexible. You cannot make quick conclusions based on the first piece of data you get. Design thinking asks for a bottom-up organization rather than a top-down imposition. This is an approach that Ellen has followed for her life, and that she also uses to design the curriculum at the Fenster Academy, a place for people who want to become illustrators, to pursue art as a serious hobby, and for those who wanted to go to art school but never got the opportunity to do so. Art is such a big field today, getting more and more diverse every day. How can the ways to become an artist still be limited? I already knew Ellen was a good artist, but in this conversation, I learned two more things about her. One, that she's a good educator who truly cares about her students. And two, that she's a really great psychologist because about halfway through this episode, she flips the questions back at me. And without even realizing it, I start telling her all about my life. It was amazing. I think you will like it. (laughs) This conversation was recorded after Ellen and I met to sketch last year when I visited Utrecht. We recorded another conversation that day while sketching on the streets of Utrecht that I shared afterwards with Sneaky Art Insiders. You can listen to it now, just find the link to it in the episode description. At the time of this recording, the first batch of students at the academy were just completing their first modules. Today, they are at the end of their year-long program. If you're curious about the Fenster Academy too, check out the link given in the episode description. If you enjoy this show, if you like the work I put into making it, consider becoming a Sneaky Art Insider. Your support will help me put in the time, attention, and energy to find guests, to research subjects, to have these long-form conversations, and to edit and produce the final episodes for you. All of the work for this podcast is done by me, and I'm proud to be supported by some wonderful listeners. I would love for you to join our circle. Hello, Ellen, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. Thank you so much for giving me your time today.
0: Thank you for having me, Michelle, in your very inspiring <laughs> podcast series.
1: <laughs> so how are you?
0: Oh Curtis <laughs> So I just spend the whole day working and taking care of the kids. We still don't do not have daycare. I think I told you about it mm-hmm. last time. It's a huge problem out here. I think everywhere in Europe.
1: Oh there's really? no
0: no healthcare workers, no daycare workers, no teachers. It's, crisis. Crisis of the crisis. it's a the after the After Christ. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I worked, raised home, got the kids, took care of the kids, back to my studio again, just had three bites of my salad. (laughs) And I switched to talking English. Oh, yes. Yeah, but but otherwise work-wise, I'm really happy and work is a very important part of my life these days, so
1: tell me a little yeah. bit about it like what kind of things uh, around the academy and otherwise what are the what is the work that is keeping you busy and happy these days
0: well i would like to draw a bit more so that should get a little bit more of my attention again but i'm very busy for the academy and the people i experienced so much goodwill from people i needed a um, uh, a tutor to teach the theoretical classes And the professor that I asked didn't have time to do it, but he agreed to sit down with me and get the whole program together. It's just great that somebody does that for you, you know? He sat down with me for three hours. I did pay his lunch, but... (laughs) And so, yeah, so many people are just enthusiastic about what's happening. And today I got a a phone call of someone from... Digital culture, digital visual culture festival in the Netherlands, if we wanted to have a discount for my school, it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> yes, of course. I love that. Yeah. It makes me feel less alone, you know, because it's just me. Yeah. Doing it solo, but pretending to be a big team. Well, I have a big team helping me out, but in the end, it's it's me at the top. <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: But it helps to have so many shoulders to stand on, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, ah, yeah.
1: yeah. And you're about uh, one and a half months into this or almost uh, just over That's... two months. I
0: think. Yeah, this week is week, week seven. Mm. Last number seven. Yeah. They almost finished the first module.
1: Wow. Uh, what, what is that about? So uh, give me a sense of how, what have the uh, students uh, done in this past month, past seven weeks?
0: They've grown like crazy. So the whole first module is about experimenting and drawing from observation and experimenting with different skills. Each week they get taught in a different skill. While they are having this whole sketchbook practice and keeping a sketchbook and drawing from observation is to improve their skills, but also to help them get over their fear of starting, help them to get out of their thinking space because you just have to draw what's in front of you and not also think about what you're going to draw. And they're building this dictionary of images in their head. And then every week they get taught in a different skill, like model drawing. Uh, They've got a, they had a class in printmaking, drawing uh, perspective, drawing with wet materials. Um well everything that I could think of looking at their group about what they would need. Alright. Like, so I got all these different tutors together. I also taught some classes. And they've grown immensely. It's crazy. It's wonderful to see. And that this is the whole thing that makes me so happy that I, I see something in someone and I know where I think they need to go. <laughs> and I give them the input that I think they need, and then magic happens, and you just—it's so much more direct than teaching psychology. I was talking about that with a psychology colleague last week, because teaching psychology, well, you also help people grow. It's, but it's on a whole different level. This is very direct. You teach people a skill, and the next week they make these amazing drawings that you, like a week before. They thought they they wouldn't be able to do it, and now it's there in their book, and it's magic. And it's some always it's something different than I expected or they expected, which is even more amazing. Yeah, it's just one big amazement, and it's fantastic. Yeah,
1: that sounds great. <laughs> like those are skills that yeah. even I really want to pick up. Like I think I would love to oh. learn printmaking, for example.
0: Yeah. Oh, we have this amazing print room in. Uh in Utrecht, where I took them to and the tutors there were were amazing they even got me to screen print. so I gathered all these different tutors together and everyone has to do their own solo class their own individual class but everything fits together it's it's everything that I imagined and more it's amazing yeah (laughs) and it's really strange because I don't feel like I feel like a part of it but I don't feel like a Yeah, what am I, a manager, a principal? I'm just, I feel like a bystander that gets to enjoy this beautiful process. And I just think of cool stuff that people can do and I just put it there and they do it. That
1: sounds great. That sounds like a great uh, situation to be in. It also sounds like a great place and it also sounds like a great job to have. So congratulations.
0: (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I created my, my dream job. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: That's that's maybe the best part of this, actually, that you've created this dream job. So uh, part of this episode is going to be the recording that we did in Utrecht. We met for the first time and we sketched and we were joined by these lovely other sketchers as well as random people who happened to be sketchers but were on holiday in that same yeah. location on that same day at that time right next to us. So all kinds of happy coincidences happened and we were able to record also some really uh, good thoughts, some really good ideas. And I'm very excited to share this with my listeners because it's a completely new kind of episode which I was able to explore with you. So thank you very much for giving me that, uh, for just making that opportunity possible.
0: Yes. Well, thank you for being there because we've never had coincidental meetings with tourists before. Like, yeah. Yeah. All this stuff happened that never happened before. You <laughs> must have brought some energy with you yeah. that was new yeah, I, to our group. I would, yeah. I would love
1: to think it was all me. We can, we can go <laughs> with that. We can, we can make the official narrative that I made it happen. Yes. So, uh, part of the things that I was curious about, we couldn't go into depth when we spoke in Utrecht the last time because uh, a lot of things were happening and we were trying to complete drawings. So uh, I'm curious about this journey from psychology and being a practicing psychologist from teaching as well to switching to illustration. And it feels like such a dramatic shift in your life. So maybe give me a sense of how it happened, what made it happen, and how it went for you to do this.
0: It's a very, very long story (laughs) with many, many factors I think we should start with me growing up in a rural part of the Netherlands. It's called the behind corner or the corner behind. If you translate into English, I was born in the afterhook for the Dutch listeners, (laughs) which is really uh, looked well. The the part that I grew up in feels like it's looked upon uh, by the other, like the Western side of Europe as farmer people like not very educated and yeah so I grew up in that side of the Netherlands in a small village and I was quite I don't know if I was artistic but I was creative and a bit uh... I wasn't really weird but I always wanted to be different and wanted to be weird but as soon as I would put on like I remember the time that I put on blue sunglasses and everybody would say, "Oh, there you have the girl with the blue sunglasses, trying to be interesting." You know, we were talking about the um, what do you call it? There's this saying in Dutch, like, "Don't put your head above the 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 grain or the mowing field because it will be cut off." That's from my part of the of the country. So well, as soon as I would put my head a bit up, I would be cut off. But I always so, and I wasn't really. I did like drawing, and I drew a bit more than my peers, but not super much. I was good at body painting in high school, which is quite funny. But so, but I did have a feeling that I wanted to go to art school. But I went to an open day of art school, and everybody was super colorful and flashing uh, beside me on roller skates in colorful dresses and. And I was this really shy girl from this side of the, the Netherlands, literally dressed in gray. I was a bit of a Gothic, uh, yeah, dark hair hanging in front of my eyes. And I thought, no, (laughs) this is way too scary for me. So yeah. What do you do when you try to understand yourself and when you're scared of the world, you go and study psychology, but also. Yeah, I was always interested in people and their behaviors. And I was quite analytical, which is also a part of me. So then I went and studied psychology. But I always, from day one, I doubted if it would be the job for me. But I was also super ambitious. So I went on and on and on. It's a very ambitious field to be in. People often don't realize it. But you've got all these post-MA courses that you need to do. And it's a lot of elbow work because you've got 400 people applying for the same post-MA course. And I just wanted to continue and get the other courses done. And I did start art school in the evening hours, but I never finished any course. And then I turned 30. So I had a quarter-life crisis. (laughs)
1: A quarter life crisis. And so are, are you intending to live until 120?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's an official one. You've got several crises in your life.
1: Yeah, yeah, possibly.
0: And yeah, and who knows,
1: maybe you do live to 120.
0: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, would be nice. But it's also, I think, part of it is doing the thing that is expected of you. So my parents, they never wanted me to study psychology. Uh, because they thought I was too sensitive, you know. Also, a thing you often hear: "You're too sensitive to study psychology. You can't handle all the problems." But I, I did want to be a good girl and just study and then do the thing you studied for and continue and grow and grow and grow. And then I turned thirty, and then my dad. I think that that was also the time that my dad got ill for the first time. He's had a lot of. Um, different, very, very um, severe illnesses. And he survived all of them. I wanted to say bad luck, but that made me think, no, actually, he's had a lot of good luck. He's Because we always say he's got nine lives. He's had so much stuff happen to his body and he's still here. Thank God. But that made me really think about, we've lost a lot of people in our family quite early on in their sixties. So maybe it was a midlife crisis because I thought, oh my God, I'm half, I might be halfway now. And is this a thing that I always want to do or do I still want to become an artist? And I had done every, almost every course that I could have done in my life as a psychologist, I had my own private practice by then. And I was sitting in my practice thinking now I've got the time to be an artist, but there was no time. Like I I was officially there for only three days a week, but you always have to do more and it's never ending. And um, so that made me think, okay, um, what jobs are out there being a psychologist that I could take on that won't be so heavy in my work week and my whole family is a teacher. My whole family is a teacher and I never wanted to be a teacher. But I thought, hmm, that might be the easier job to do. (laughs) So then I started teaching psychology. And um, back then there was no way I could go back to art school because it it became so much more expensive because I did already do all these courses. And then I had to pay like a, a sort of private fee or... a. the the true college fee and I couldn't afford it at that uh, moment in time so I um, started an apprenticeship so I thought like how did Rembrandt do it and Van Gogh do it I just looked for a master to learn from and I did that and I uh, started illustrating and yeah so well there's a whole different story there but then that made me start illustration and I started teaching psychology which I actually from day one, I loved, I loved, which was also quite a realization <laughs> yeah, after always thinking, I would not do it right. yeah,
1: but, yeah. but being of the type, like you mentioned, being of the type that yeah. wants to play safe and wants to you know do the right yes. thing, uh, what kept this art and illustration alive for you through all these years that you know you could easily tell yourself that now you're doing psychology and you're not an artist or. You're not aspiring to be an artist anymore or an illustrator anyway. So how did you keep this uh, this dream, this hunger for illustration, for art alive in those years?
0: Yeah, it's a good question because it's really weird. I never really drew that much. I had like maybe two weeks every six months that I would drew a, a draw maniacally. How do you say it? Like a maniac? <laughs> And then I would stop it again and just focus on my work and my studies. And, uh, but there was something that kept pulling me back that kept saying like, Oh, you need to go here. Look at me. It's art. Yeah, it's fun. (laughs) But yeah, it was also in a way I also really had to find my niche, my, my people in the art industry because, so I tried. I tried so many stuff in art. I tried fine art, which was too free, maybe. Um, I was too analytical for it. I had a very analytical approach to fine art. I was thinking, oh, what do fine artists uh, do? What what, uh, do my teachers need? Okay, they like uh, contrast. They like you to have two ideas and... Uh, find the contradiction and then put them back together. So I had amazing art, but it was all, my approach behind it was very analytical. I just wouldn't say, I just wouldn't tell my teachers that I approached this analytical. (laughs) And um, uh, I tried to be an an art teacher, but that was, then you are more, then you are helping other people become an artist, which I'm actually doing right now, I'm realizing, but I didn't choose at that time because I was thinking, no, I want to be an artist myself. And also the Dutch art, I found that the Dutch art academy is just really not my place because I also tried applied arts. I tried graphic design. They they also would say like, no, you're a fine artist. I just, there was no no place to land for me. And the the true calling actually came when I visited the summer school in Cambridge that's when I really find found my like art family and everything came together the analytical approach the fine art part the illustration part
1: so let's let's talk about Cambridge but I'm also curious before that to just uh, understand a little better because you said uh, you applied this analytical approach to when you were trying to do fine art and yes. you spoke about it in a negative way as if this is not the right way to do it. Um, just help me understand that a little bit. What, was, what would can. be considered wrong about it and what would be considered the right approach?
0: Yeah, the funniest thing is that now the studio you are seeing behind me right now, um, I've been sharing for a year with a really amazing artist and he has a very analytical approach to his art and that's what makes it amazing. But, but back then I was labeled a uh, perfectionist, control freak uh, by the fine art department. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and maybe I think they, in a way they were right because I, 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 for me, it's easier when I have like sort of framework, I have a hard time coming up with stuff myself, Um I do like to have that more. So in a way, I think they had the right feeling that it wasn't the best fit for me. Um, Yeah, I think they that I might have been too tight or too... Yeah, I don't know. Why? Maybe it's it's that I used a formula and, and they didn't like it. And that's not so creative, you know, to use a formula. And every time it was in a different mold, or a diff- there was a different um, product uh, that came from that formula. But it was a sort of, I yeah, it was, it had a kind of formula that I used made.
1: Let's let's uh, let's come yeah. to let's come to the illustration. Let's let's go to Cambridge. Tell me how yeah. how what was it like to find your people, and what what was what was that experience?
0: Yeah, so I was trying to illustrate. My whole life is one big procrastination from actually illustrating, actually. <laughs> because I thought like, oh yeah, I also need the money because I had a house. I needed to pay a mortgage. So I set up a concept store. I had a teaching job and, and I was illustrating in that store and I didn't illustrate that much. And then uh, Marloes de Vries, uh, a famous Dutch illustrator, she told me, like, oh, I've been to Cambridge to the summer school and it's amazing. I think you should go there this summer. And I listened to her and I I went there. And I arrived on Sunday. And on Tuesday, I phoned home crying that I never wanted to leave again. (laughs) And my partner said, okay, (laughs) there we go again something new what's happening and um yeah it um it's just everything clicked in the sense of all of a sudden it dawned on me that it was storytelling that was the center of everything that i loved stories and storytelling in images uh, sharing stories in psychology i loved reading Uh, when I grew up uh, and actually my English professor told me to study psychology because I was always analyzing the people in the books that I was reading Uh, so there was this huge focus on storytelling which I had never found anywhere in in the Dutch art school system back then this is like when I did art school or tried art school is already 15 years ago or so yeah 15 years ago And Cambridge is like nine years ago, eight years ago. There was this amazing focus on storytelling. There were all these different people in class, also from completely different backgrounds, not only art, but also people that had studied literature or history or that all got accepted. Uh, we all also needed to show a visual portfolio, but it was just this great mixture of people and. Uh, a more, uh, I don't know the word. What what do you call the old masters, like skill focused? We call it craft, but the English word for craft is more that you do woodwork or something. But we call well, it like the true craft. Like when I, they would also just teach you skills. Like in 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 the Netherlands, um, I arrived at the fine art department and they told me, "There's your easel. We'll see you in six months." and and in Cambridge they taught me the true like I had a masterclass in color masterclass in uh, perspective uh, you know like you you got taught on the true skill and the mastery of storytelling and so it was also analytical and it was very artist artistic so these two parts of me came together and I already experienced that in the summer school with the people there, with the way they taught. Um, There's this fantastic tutor there, Pam Smy. I don't know if Emma Carlisle mentioned her too, but she's so inspiring and amazing in the way she draws. And also, yes, when I was in high school, I was was really good at drawing, like drawing very technically. I could draw an amazing elephant for you. And uh I was hired. I, I I've always had the strangest jobs. I was working for a tuck, yeah, I think you call it a talkboat magazine. <laughs> the the boats that push and pull, you know? And uh and they knew I could draw, so I had all these commissions for drawing boats. <laughs> People's boats. <laughs> uh not not many of them, but just a few. And, um, but, but always, I also thought, well, I had all this stuff in my head, all these, uh, prejudices about, you know, drawing very technically is not, it's, that's not artistic. It's not a good drawing. And then once at summer school, I learned about drawing from observation. I seriously had never heard about it before. Uh, the term urban sketching was, I did not learn about urban sketching when I was there, but uh back in the Netherlands afterwards. Yeah, I've n I'd never heard of that whole world before because I always thought that I wasn't a true artist because I was drawing so technically. And then right. I saw the sketchbooks of Pem Smai, which were amazing. amazing. And I thought hey, I this is this is <laughs> me. This is what I can do. Like we're yeah. Oh and there was just a lightness also to to the the room, to the classroom. It was just all light and fun, and yeah, it was. Yeah, you can hear how much in love I am still. It was the most amazing period of my life.
1: Yeah, that's so. That's really interesting, actually, because uh, even when we spoke in uh, when we met and we spoke about this, uh, what really struck me and what stayed with me was not only that you explored so many different paths, but yeah, you never felt uh, that pressure that you have to stay with this thing that you've chosen. So you have sort of stayed tapped into your own curiosity and you've moved left and right and up and down with it. So uh, tell me a little yes, bit so about now. Always
0: and then to add that it doesn't, it might sound very courageous, but I always took a safe path <laughs> and always used my analytical size to find the safe path. You know, I do want to add that because I'm, I might sound very courageous, but I really am not <laughs>
1: <laughs> no i i I understand yeah. that, of course, and uh i, I like yeah. i I get told about my decision to quit uh engineering and become a writer artist, also in the same light, and I also try to uh excuse myself with this uh, with this idea that you know i did I waited a really long time until I was very, very sure. I made sure everything around it was set up. For, like I chose also the safest way that I could, nonetheless, jump. But I yes. did. I did jump, and you did jump as well. Like even if even if you knew that there is cushions and enough support, but you did. You did jump. So jumping is nice. I like yes. that. And it's really nice yeah. because you know, like I, I, I've my story for me. It made sense in my world. I was thinking about growing up in India, and. You have, even from early childhood, you have this idea that you're supposed to follow this path, just like the saying you said that, you know, don't raise your head above the corn because it will get chopped off. So the same way that don't step out of line. Don't be this uh, individualist, like stay with, stay with the group. Do as the decisions of the group, your culture, your surroundings, your community, the things they approve of, the things they disapprove of. So you're supposed to follow those ideas. And I really, I really, really didn't want to. but um i saw that as a particular thing of my part of the world but it's it's almost heartening to see it in a way that you know everyone all over the world has these kind of struggles and they're not unique to me and they're not necessarily unique to people from my part of the world so it's yes. it's interesting to hear like the kind of the kind of things that you were looking for and you were unable to find but you kept looking and then you were able to find those kind of answers, and they led you to new things. So, uh, coming out of Cambridge, tell me about this uh, being an illustrator, because of course you also shifted from that very soon in a very interesting way. So, mm-hmm. uh, tell me about being an illustrator and what it was like to what it was like to come out of Cambridge with these with these ideas of what you wanted to do. Finally,
0: I didn't do a lot with it. Well, so I firstly I got pregnant during the MA (laughs) Um, because I turned 36 in my first year, I think. And on my 36th birthday, I was crying. Like, what did I do? (laughs) I, I, I would like to have a baby. And I started this course and I don't know, am I too late? Will it ever happen? And yeah. And then I got pregnant during the course and I graduated with a baby. (laughs) Uh, And um, after finishing the course, I actually thought to myself like, oh, I'm not gonna... um, It was already uh, such an achievement to graduate, to not have any delay um, because of having a, a very young infant, a child. Um, I thought let's just take a a break for a couple of months and focus on uh, teaching psychology because I still had that teaching job to um, take it easy for a while and just earn some money and then see what happens. Uh, I also was really, really uh, unhappy with my graduation work actually. I see. So I graduated with Distinction but I, I, I still think objectively, I didn't deserve it. But I think they, they gave it for my process, maybe more than than the product. But I really disliked the book I had ended up with my my handwriting, so to say, like my my. I, we we were taught not to use the word style, <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, my style of drawing, I just I really disliked it. And I felt really depressed about it, and I thought, "Let's give myself a break and see what happens, and maybe go back to observational drawing." But then I got this huge creative block, and I really felt like i I sunk into a black hole of only teaching psychology and that's when and that was maybe the biggest gift so before I never drew that much actually, but um. I did the MA, drew a whole lot, drew super often, and then I tried to give myself a break from drawing, and I became very unhappy. And I, I finally noticed, like, ah, oh, they gave me the gift of the happiness of drawing because drawing had become something that I was just doing, and not something that had to uh, end in a product, or it was just. Uh, yeah, an act that resulted in happiness. <laughs> that was actually the biggest gift I think that BMA gave me. That a drawing has had become a sort of meditational act for me, and that's what I realized when I gave myself a break. I I became totally depressed, and uh, and I noticed that I didn't like teaching psychology so much anymore. I needed to have a big part in my life that was drawing. I've just I I'm still looking for the role that illustration has in my life. I had another baby and I I did say to myself I'm not gonna put myself through the process of having deadlines for a book. I see young moms around me trying to make books that are really struggling with finishing books in time for publishers and I thought I'm not gonna put myself through that. Um, uh, so that's what I was saying earlier like there's another big procrastination thing in my life which is like yeah let's just set up something uh, that's an MA level course in the Netherlands <laughs> to just not have to do to work on a book because a book <laughs> is still work let's just set up this <laughs> huge course which is less work than doing a book <laughs> but um. I was standing on this crossroad and I chose the path of setting up this course. And that also made me consider what role I want drawing to have in my life. I do want it to play a bigger part, but I still do not really know how. Wow. I don't want to do commissions anymore. I really dislike doing commissions. <laughs> I did like working on books, but there must be a reason why I'm still not finishing any book. There's only sketch, sketches on my desk, a lot of sketches, a lot of book ideas, but I'm never finishing them. And I love urban sketching. But what like, what role can that have? Well, I, you know, you spoke to Koshi Kuno also. She's also a friend of mine, and I admire her so much of having found uh, a way in life for urban sketching to be also your source of income and just to yeah but i still don't yeah i still don't know what how (laughs) when (laughs) (laughs) i did so many courses i had so many mentorships and i still do not know what i want what kind of illustrator i want to be
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah yeah well one aspect of that feels like uh not having found the thing that suits you. But another yeah. aspect of it also feels like maybe the thing you want isn't already created and it the answer will finally be something that you kind of fashion for yourself, just like all these other yeah. things that you've been doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I'm, I am still drawing a lot. I'm not sharing anymore because I, I, it's just so much work to... Put an Instagram post together because I am quite perfectionistic, and it doesn't work so much to think about that. But I am I am still drawing a lot, right? And, uh, almost all of it is, is from observation. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, one of the things that uh, we spoke about when we met, but I think we didn't have the chance to really get into it. Um, yeah, I was thinking about how. The the idea of getting a, a, a quote-unquote traditional education in arts. So mm-hmm. like your story and the accounts of other people, they tell me about these people who sometimes struggle to fit, uh, struggle to meet the criteria, struggle to really be defined by one thing. And often uh, when you're applying to a university to study for a course, You are one amongst hundreds of applicants who all meet. And, you know, just in order to process this this, uh, enormous pile of applications, people tend to have strict, simple criteria that they can move through quickly. And what it does is it can exclude people who don't, who haven't followed a traditional path, who haven't followed a straight line path. And Mm -hmm. you also mentioned having difficulty in that, like not being, Uh, people not quite understanding whether you're a psychologist or an illustrator and how could you be both of those things. So uh, we we live now in this interesting situation, in this interesting circumstances where a lot of these institutions and a lot of these um, places that we needed to go in order to have credibility, these ideas are wearing down. These ideas are being discarded slowly in different fields. And arts is one of those fields, like the idea that you need to be formally educated in order to be a great artist is not true. Uh, Just like in order to be a great writer, it's not necessary that you should you should have a degree in English or a degree in uh, creative writing or something like that. So Mm -hmm. um, what does uh, in this in this uh, in this place, what does the the Fenster Academy offer to people? who don't quite fit into like why why would they why would they be here? Why would they not be also applying for that MA that you did?
0: Well, everybody should apply for the MA that I did. <laughs> 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 because it's still the best course ever. But my course is also quite good. <laughs> um why? It's a hard question, Jean. I have to think about that. (laughs) I think, well, we, um, the course was created by design thinking because I really believe, like I was a design thinker before I heard about the word design thinking, because when I say that I planned every step, like I didn't take a big leap, I took small leaps (laughs) and I also created this course. From design thinking, it's, it's still quite flexible also because design thinking says, do not think of a product that you think is right for a group of people, but talk to the people you're developing it for, do your research, but also speak to people, try out stuff, be flexible, change when your people change, when your target group changes. Um. To not be super fixed on one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it helps that it was developed through design thinking. I had so many interviews with so many people. I used focus groups to discuss with what I was planning to do. Um, and also now, it's so it's still quite flexible. Might also be because I started with a smaller class, a smaller group of people. But also even during the interviews, I was see I was looking at like where are people coming from? What would they need from me? Okay, let's ask these tutors to do that, let's ask these tutors to do that. And that's when you're an accredited institution, um, you have to follow certain rules. Right. And I do I have to follow any rule. Right. I can be super flexible. I I constantly talk to my students. About what they want. If they are getting what they want. I love that there is still. Part of it. That's still open for improvisation. So there's a lot of that. So I set up. An entry level. But it's not fixed. You don't have to. Have finished another course before. Before you come in to do mine i think that that also might be different from my course yeah
1: uh give me an example of something that through this process of gathering feedback from put prospective students and uh current students like what is something that occurred that came to you that you hadn't uh, thought of before
0: so i really like studying i am i think i'm addicted to studying myself and <laughs> and I have this analytical side and I I really I really wanted to include an analytical part, like writing a thesis, mm-hmm. doing research. And in the focus groups, like almost every person in the focus group said, Okay, if you're doing that, I'm not I'm not coming to your course. I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> I do not want to write, write a thesis. That's what I'm not doing a course for. I wanna be Become the best storyteller there is, right? And and maybe I should have made it more, made them more aware of the how important it could be also for your, uh, for being a storyteller to also write a thesis. But I let that one go, and now there's a smaller. I still have some theory in there, but it's a smaller part of it, and there's more focus on storytelling now. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I I organized an excursion that I'm organizing an excursion that wasn't there before to a museum to draw there. Uh, it's also on a skill level, so they they had a hard time with drawing perspective. So I I asked the tutor to come and teach about perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I included anything different yet because. I already included a lot of amazing stuff, maybe. <laughs> yeah,
1: and of course, you have to spend some time now with your initial idea, see how it plays out. Uh, also. You have to give it time, right? You can't be changing on a whim. You can't be changing very quickly something that you've been working, that you've held with for a longer period of time. You have to give it the time to see how it develops.
0: Exactly. It's the first time yeah. that I'm doing it. It's the first class, first time. Um. Uh, the lovely thing that is happening, though, is that many people are approaching me now mm-hmm. to add stuff to the course. So people that have uh, uh, published books, they want to tell about their books. Um, so I, I, I am attracting a lot of nice people, a lot of nice uh, teachers and coaches that want to add stuff to the program. Right.
1: And when we met, you told me also that um, one of the things you want to equip people with is the ability uh, bit You want them to know how they will be illustrators, like how they should navigate the job of being an illustrator, um, how they should understand money, how they should understand the business side of being illustrators. So tell me a little bit about uh, this with respect to firstly, um, in what way is that lacking in the kind of education that is otherwise given out? And in what way are you helping them with this?
0: So in all my interviews that I did, everybody was saying like, uh, that I needed to include a module in business that they still didn't get taught business um, that they were still mostly being taught uh, in where to get funding for your like subsidies mm-hmm. or how do you call grants. it fun- yeah grants for their work and not how to make how to make your work work for you right um, apart from uh, getting grants so. Um, we came up with the idea of people graduating with a portfolio and a business plan, mm. and um I'm still um juggling with the idea of also having them do a little a small apprenticeship or something. This is the last module, so it's still like it's design thinking, so I'm still
1: <laughs> tinkering it's with still
0: it. not finished yet right. yeah, it's still in a, in a mold and uh, I'm attracting people to, to tutor it, but I, I still want it to be a bit flexible seeing. So like I'm at, right now I'm observing my students, seeing what they need, thinking about the right people to match it with, uh, but they're gonna, yeah, so they're gonna graduate with a business plan and a portfolio. And what I do know is that I do not want a tutor that is only educated in tutoring creatives but I do want to attract someone that also has this hardcore business side um because I want my students to look further than just the publishing world yeah but- well like you say I I would really love to inspire them to also think of new ways that are maybe non-existent that are not yet there but yeah I would like to have them use their creative brains to think of other ways to find income with their uh, stories and with their images. This is also the reason that I'm not. We're not teaching them uh, just how to make picture books or just how to make graphic novels, right. but we're teaching them to be visual storytellers and to be very flexible in um, how and where and when they are gonna tell their stories. Right. This they might still end up being picture book makers or, but that's not what we're teaching them right. we're teaching them everything about making visual stories
1: right yeah that's so interesting because i mean uh, the paths are opening up and all kinds of things are possible now and i feel like yeah. the most important thing people should approach these things with is a, a, a sense of confidence about themselves and uh, like like just like just like you like const- i think it's so useful to be Maybe even a little over analytical, but certainly you need to be analytical a little bit. Uh, You need to be a little dispassionate sometimes. And a part of design thinking is also like this, that you have to be a little uh, self-critical. You have to be willing to uh, get your ego out of the way and examine if something is not working and take action on that, even if you might personally like it, if it doesn't fulfill your objectives. Uh, give me a sense of who are the. Give me a sense of the profile of these students. What uh, what kind of backgrounds are they coming from? Do they belong to a particular age group? Uh, are, do they have the same goals coming uh, into the program and going out of the program?
0: Yeah, it's a very diverse group. You know, I was just realizing that the funny thing is using also this analytical, critical approach to your own work. I just had a coaching talk with one of the students. This uh, two of the students this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, And they were talking about fear, uh, fear of rejection, not uh, wanting to look back on your work because it's fearful to do that because you might not like what you see. And we were talking about how also critically reflecting on your work makes you take a step back. Like putting yourself in a helicopter above your work also diminishes fear in a way Mm -hmm. because you're, yeah, you're just looking at it, looking at it in an analytical way makes you just think about, okay, what went good? What went wrong? How can I manage the stuff that went wrong? How can I use that to make it better next time? It's funny how yeah I how I think to also be analytical. Yeah,
1: it, it feels also to me like familiar. it feels to me like a part of this is that you know this idea that you can see what's wrong and then you can make a path towards making it better. Yeah, uh, there is a sense here that art is something that is a gift or a talent, and you're simply supposed to be right. Like this idea so, of iteratively figuring out how to be better is not is not a very common understanding around being an artist
0: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah this was a thing i uh, i also spoke to you about that i spoke to a phd student in england a dutch phd student in england that was studying the art school system in the netherlands in relationship to the art school system in england uh-huh. and he was saying to me that the dutch way is thinking like this is an artist there's talent there um it will come out naturally like just give her an easel and see what she makes <laughs> in six months <laughs> and that the the english way is okay there's talent there but we need to um support this artist to get the talent out uh in the most optimal way and 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 learn the skills uh, teach them skills and uh yeah but I don't. I, I don't think if that's if that's uh, still the case in the Netherlands. And I I actually, to be honest, I didn't study for that long. Like I I got an escape, um, because I was accepted to a, a really difficult course in psychology that was really difficult to be accepted to, and I just took the lifeline and ran. <laughs> <laughs> I ran from fine art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: So let's <laughs> let's circle back to the students now. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the the like again these uh, who are they and where are they coming from and uh, as in in terms of in the kind of artists and illustrators what are, what their backgrounds are like and uh, where do they want to go?
0: Yeah, so they are uh, thirty five years old and older. It's such a diverse group. Um, there are people that did art school. But finished, um, very disillusioned, and tried and did other stuff. One became a social worker for years and now wants to return. There are people that did art school, but in a a different type of art, not illustration, but uh, like fine art uh landscaping, interior interior design, uh theater design, fashion there and then there are the people like me that did something completely differently but have always been drawing um did some courses but not not uni or anything but just uh some courses in drawing and got really well at it became yeah Good artists and then applied there as a, a lawyer all right uh yeah and uh like a communication specialist well i call them in english but yeah yeah
1: and uh what about uh what are their ideas for where they want to go with this uh do, do they converge on their goals or do they also have completely different visions of how they want to what they want to do with the education with the skills and the tricks and the tools that they pick up?
0: Yeah so everybody needs to apply with a learning uh, learning learning objectives learning goals the goals that they want to reach with uh, doing the course There were a few that just wanted to be become the best drawers that they have in them. <laughs> um, one of them said, "I want to be the next Pip Westendorp, which is like an a huge, <laughs> a huge illustrator out here." Um, most of them really have in their heads, like, "I want to be a picture book maker," or "I want to be a graphic novel maker." Yeah, yeah,
1: and. It's 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 very interesting to me because you're offering them a non-traditional path to do it. So I think yeah. even by virtue of having come to you, these uh like it's the one lesson that I can feel everybody takes is that, you know, you're allowed to have a non-traditional path and that if you pick up skills and you learn, you fill in these gaps in your knowledge that have not come from experience or from your previous education it is still possible to change that situation. And that's such a powerful, empowering thing to give to somebody. The idea that you can still chase these dreams, or maybe in some cases, I assume these are long-held dreams, like for decades, that people might have felt that it's too late to come to them now.
0: Yes. And so my biggest passion is to help them achieve their dreams. I really want to make it work for them and I want, I want to get them there. Even if I have to kick their behinds, (laughs) (laughs) because that's what I always ask my, my uh, students in my shorter courses, like, do you want to uh, have the whip approach where I use my whip
1: Hmm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) or do you want the soft approach? (laughs) I, I want to get them there because I know it's possible, you know, because I, I'm doing it myself. I was stuck in this very traditional part and I changed
1: it. Right. It feels like there's a bit of the psychologist still here. Like it's you. Yeah. It's so much of how you are thinking of your students and uh, their trajectories and even how you're treating yourself in this process. Like there's so much of this this attitude. It feels, at least it seems to me from the outside, that it's coming from this place that you're able to see uh you're you're able to link it with helping people find joy and happiness and uh ah uh,
0: yes yeah yeah yes might be it might also be... part of it is i also stu- i think i also studied psychology because of a, a, a big interest in minority group like the underdogs i have always felt connected to underdogs already in elementary school like my when we had to uh or write reports, it was always about Mandela or Rabin, or uh, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> if you looked at other students, they would write about dogs or dolphins. <laughs> it also feels, quite, it almost feel, feels like an act of anarchy in a way. Like, let's show the world what we can do, people. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and the uh, well, uh, a part of anarchy is also that the institutions in charge of order don't have to be the only institutions in charge of order. And people mm-hmm. often think of anarchy as chaos. But uh, another a positive way of looking at the idea of anarchy is also it is bottom up organization rather than top down imposition. Yeah. 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 And uh, it can be argued like I think I'm, I'm definitely in favor of this idea that so much creative work the top-down is just a narrative that's attached after it. But the process of creation, the the spark, the inspiration to do something, and the drive to push it is usually bottom-up. And the way that art movements uh, gather steam, momentum, and people, and pick up and become something valuable is also bottom-up. Like Whether somebody mm-hmm. connects with something and really it becomes a deep part of them has nothing to do with what an art critic said about it. It is usually something more innate than that. So mm-hmm. I like I like the idea of a little bit of anarchy in the setup of how people become artists and what gives people the permission to do the kind of art they want and become successful at it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was wondering. I maybe I've heard it many times in your podcast, but then I'm sorry if I forgot. <laughs> but what was your lies that kept you going? Uh, Or made you keep going for illustration?
1: Well, um, it wasn't, I wonder if it was, so I keep trying to parse it now. Like, so I, first I used to think that I didn't read a lot of comics. I did not read a lot of comics when I was growing up, but then I really thought about it another day and I was like, no, that's not true. There were always images with stories that I read. Uh, Not only children's books, but also the books that really attracted me always had a place for images in them. And it was always a very integral part of the storytelling for me. So my favorite author growing up was Royal Dahl. And all his books had Quentin Blake's illustrations in them. And I was too young at one time to know that it's a separate person. And I, I thought that Royal Dahl does both of these things. He writes and it's he true. draws. Yep. And so I told myself, this is what I want to do. I want to write and draw and make a complete yeah. book. Like a complete book for me needs to have some drawing in it even if it is a really deep story maybe if they have an illustrated map of that world I would appreciate it but I feel like it needs I've always felt like it needed something so what really uh, my my drive was not to be an illustrator but it was that I want to tell stories and mm-hmm. then on a separate note it was that stories are incomplete without some element of illustration it's, it can't be just words So I always thought that I I want to be a novelist and I want to write these big stories that change the world. But it was never, like, in the world that I grew up, I did not have any role models for this. I did not know anybody in my circle, anybody who I knew through somebody else who was a writer or who was an artist. So I had no idea of how these things happen, how these things, like, where do you go? Do you study? Do you have to study? And do you have to know certain people? So all of these things were just unknowns. And but whenever I got the chance, I did try to express myself creatively. I loved to read. I love to read even today. I read a lot. So as soon as I learned that it's possible to also do the other part to write, I started a blog the first day that I heard the word blog. And I started writing. And I think uh, what happened in my life was that there was this mix of things that I want to do and things that I'm good at doing. And science for the longest time was just this thing that I'm good at doing. And ah, yes. I like I like understanding these things and I like making sense of my world. Like I'm analytical like that. So these rules that run everything are fascinating and I want to learn. Teach me more. Teach me more. Um, But i was and i was also good at it but what happens is that uh, this achievement it sort of obs- like it uh, obscures everything else you forget what is it that gives you real joy regardless of achievement you tie your joy to achievement so i reached a point with education i got my masters degree and i was in living in delft and i was doing this phd program and i still knew already in the back of my head that really what i want to do is be a writer that would be the thing that I'm really, really happy with. And I I reached this point with my education, with my research, that I was, I, I reached the bottom of how curious I was. Like, my curiosity was over. <laughs> I realized wow. that to now, to continue, meant that I have to be, I have to find things out. I'm not really learning. I'm discovering, or I'm inventing. I'm at the edge of what is known. And this uh going into the unknown to do something no one's done to learn something no one has ever deciphered yet to discover invent to uh, all of those research oriented things that is not what was my motivation at least in science mm-hmm. and i kept writing this whole time because for some various various reasons i kept getting joy from making jokes from writing haiku from making a one-panel comic, from making a three-panel comic. And I tried all of these things. Like, I have written hundreds of haiku. I've written dozens of poems. I've written hundreds of short stories, like literally hundreds of short stories. And I tried all the different ways that I could exercise this creativity. And I kept doing it always on the side. And then I just finally reached a point where I was like, you know, I think it's time to jump already. I feel like I need to do it. And some various things happened. And I saw people who gave me this inspiration that it's possible to do these things. And it's almost a crime not to do these things. It also,
0: mindset also really helped me. Yeah. Once I reached yeah.
1: that conclusion, it became really easy. It wasn't a difficult decision at all. So sometimes people tell me that, well, people, of course, uh, appreciatively tell me that it's a brave decision and it's a brave thing to do. but. I push back against it, maybe a little unfairly, but I push back against it saying that it's not really brave. I really wanted to do it. How can it be brave if I really, really wanted it? It was so easy. Like, when I finally realized that this is what I want to do, I just knew that I'm going to do it. Like, I didn't know that I'm going to be successful. I don't know if I'm going to be successful. I don't know if everything is going to work. But I just know clearly that this is what I want to do. And... Mm -hmm then i started moving towards that and i started seeing what i needed to change in my life to make that happen and once i was so clear that this is what i want all of those other decisions become very secondary decisions they're not so difficult anymore because i mean if i don't do what i want that's like that seems so utterly silly and so completely ridiculous to know what you want to do and then to not do it is just incredibly like
0: you didn't have have any internal voices telling you, no, don't do you... I've had a lot of monsters well, in my head.
1: I have I have them with respect to various things. So I had that with respect to starting a podcast. Because yeah. I like who am I to talk? What exactly. Should...
0: <laughs> who are you? Yeah. So
1: but yeah, I, not not with this. Like I really, really, really just wanted to and a part of creative work is all like for me, there is a sense of Wanting to hide myself, not wanting to be like, "Hey, look at my drawing. Look at this. Look at what I did." Mm-hmm. But to want, like, to do it, it was. It became really very clear to me at that time that I really, really just want. And it wasn't art. Just to be clear, yeah, exactly. It,
0: it was still writing. It was still like writing. That, right? It was going to be a novel. Yeah.
1: It wasn't art. So the art only happened very randomly from wanting to have those little drawings in my books, which would tell a part of the story and I needed to draw them better because I was just terrible at drawing so uh, I started drawing from observation I started drawing portraits on reddit and I started doing all the different things I could to see what will work for me and out of the dozen things I tried, these two things worked I drew hundreds of portraits, maybe more than 300 portraits on reddit uh, to learn how to draw people and I started drawing from observation in a sketchbook with a fountain pen which helped me get over perfectionism, which helped me get over uh, the idea that every drawing needs to be good or else it's worthless. It helped me uh, psychologically approach the idea of a mistake and learn to really imbibe what it means to move on from a mistake and to even think, uh, reflect afterwards and think how silly of me to think of that as a mistake. It's just a silly little line. It doesn't matter. So these are attitudes came to me with the sketchbook and Once somebody wanted to buy a drawing from me, the first time was really strange, (laughs) but once it started to happen a little more, uh, I was living in the US and all my stories had been about uh, growing up in India. All my writing had been when I lived in India, when I lived in the Netherlands, and I had just moved to the US when I decided I'm going to be a novelist and I started writing this novel set in India. And I felt every few months... As time passed, I felt more and more distant from being in India because it had been already several years since I had left the country to be a student. And I was living in this country where nobody knew that I'm a writer. Nobody knows my writing. They don't know what I've done before. And I keep introducing myself as a writer who also draws. But everybody who I meet happens to know that I draw first. Then they find out, oh, you also write. So I thought, what if I switched this? What if I told people I'm an artist and I didn't tell them that I'm a writer until I finished that novel? I I thought this would be an interesting switch. Am I allowed to use the word artist? Am I allowed to say that I'm an artist? Am I allowed to uh, sell art just like that? Can I just do it like because people want it? So I'm printing it and I'm selling it now. Is that okay for me to do? And I did it with that curiosity, because I found very quickly that it's so much easier to get people to appreciate you as an artist. Like if you want them to like you as a writer, you are asking them for one or two hours of their time that you will read what I have written and you will think about it and then maybe you like it. And then you will be maybe a fan of my writing, but there's so much writing. So maybe you won't still. But with art, it's like a five second thing. I just need to show you a drawing and if it works, it immediately works. I don't have to explain what kind of artist I am. I don't have to explain why. I don't have to explain anything. Like people like art, they know immediately if they like it. And that makes my job of explanation in this foreign country where no one knows me, where I am often the only brown person in the circles that I'm walking around in, it makes it so easy for me to explain what I am. I can just show this drawing and they get it. They like it and they get it and they know who I am and they like my work. So I thought just to make things easier for myself while I'm living as an immigrant in the U.S. and we were living in this small town in Wisconsin at that time, Mm -hmm. just to make things easier for myself, what if I leaned on the art for a little bit and let's forget about the writing, So, just like you, like the procrastination. I became an artist because I was procrastinating on my novel.
0: Yeah, very functional. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well you have yeah. the academy now so some would say you are also <laughs> doing pretty well with your procrastination. <laughs> so uh, the reason I'm an artist is that I procrastinated on writing and mm-hmm. now over the last 2 years I've started to bring the writing back a little bit. I'm writing about sneaky art and I'm writing a little bit more. Okay. So it's a nice it's a nice reunion of the two. But to answer your question I I I did not ever think Ever think that I was going to be an illustrator or an artist. And mm-hmm. that I'm becoming one is a very interesting, fun development of my life from following these things, from just following this is what makes me curious, this is what I like doing, and therefore I should spend my time with the things that I like. And of course, at the crucial juncture when I was lost and I was frustrated with my novel. I discovered urban sketchers. And I discovered that drawing in a sketchbook can be like this and can be like that. And I don't have to feel bad about my drawings. I don't have to feel that my drawings are incomplete without color and detail. So I got this whole bunch of ideas very quickly as soon as I discovered urban sketchers on Instagram. And then the symposium was happening in Chicago in the time that I was there. And I gate crashed the symposium and I spoke to a few people and. It was just such incredible luck that the time that I was trying to be trying to think about art, I discovered this beautiful way that would just work for me, which suited my mentality, which suited exactly the kind of person I am. I don't like working at my desk. I don't like doing revisions and drafts. I just like to do it in one go. And if it's wrong, then I'll just do it again from the start. But don't ask me to edit. Don't ask me to come back and then polish it and all of this is urban sketching and it just perfectly suited my temperament and suddenly now here we are
0: <laughs> oh so yeah so interesting it's like you're you're you've been following the smell of delicious food <laughs> like, <laughs> so where on this timeline is the the comic making then is that
1: yeah, yeah, was that also so I... part of the
0: functional draw, drum... <laughs> the functional step to make drawing or just show your drawings?
1: <laughs> so comic making started when I was really really bored. I was writing my thesis during my bachelor's program in India, and we had yeah. a lot of time in that last semester, and uh, I just I wanted to make some jokes, and I was tired of writing uh, little jokes on Facebook, so I thought, what if I drew a joke? I saw this webcomic called xkcd.com, which is uh, made by this very nerdy guy. And it is beautiful, but it is stick figures. And I saw it and I thought, you know, stick figures can do so much. I can draw stick figures. What if I wrote my jokes with stick figures saying them? So I started doing this little thing on Facebook and started making fun of my friends and the things they would do and just be witty. And those things blew up and like a lot of people liked it. And I thought, wow, this is fun. I can express ideas through a story, through haiku. But then there are certain ideas that just work better when they are a comic. They're not meant to be stories. They're not meant to be novels. They're just meant to be. So, you know, uh, form follows function. What uh, final, how your product should look is determined by what you want it to do, how you want it to be used. And certain things are good when you want your audience to spend one hour or one week with them. So a novel for certain kinds of ideas, but certain things you want to say and certain things you want to share. The idea of sharing all kinds of things also, at the same time with Facebook coming in, like this idea that if you have a witty thought, if you have an interesting idea, just share it now. Don't have to sit with it. So Uh what form should it take? That was a nice question answered by web comics for me and meanwhile i was exploring haiku and poems and uh, short stories and uh, micro fiction and things like like 60 word fiction and things like that so i started making this web comic um because i kept drawing i kept drawing i wanted to draw better and i failed and i thought okay i need to work on it more and then once i uh, once I, I entered my masters program in the in Delft, i started to make comics about india but also about being a student and being in, like, trying to explain my life, basically. And uh, then I became a little ambitious about the kind of stories I wanted to do. So the next step became, okay, four panels, one panel, what about four pages? What about 10 pages? Can I do that? And are there, because I want to tell certain stories that are a little longer than just four panels. Now, I don't want it to be start, middle, conclusion. I want it to be longer. So I started writing bigger stories I started putting together like just a lot of trial and error like I have put out on my web comic website maybe five or six comics which are like 20 pages and each of them I have drawn maybe 10 times before I got it right there is
0: can we find them actually or are they still out there yeah they are yeah (laughs) yeah
1: But uh, it took me so much time because I just did everything from trial and error. And everything was, I'm so bad at revising that every time I would get annoyed, I would just redraw the whole thing. And Uh then halfway through, my style would change or I would learn something new. That means I have to redraw everything all over again. And then the idea would change. So the script would change. So again, I would have to redraw everything all over again. So I just did this and this and this. Like you mentioned, you know, you have lots of draft ideas which you've never finished. I have dozens of comics which are three pages in or two pages in which have entire stories and character stories written out that I just didn't bother to make because I got distracted by something else or doing another thing. So many that I took to 50% and then I dropped it because it's that last 50% or that last 30% was is really, really difficult for someone of my mentality. And I did all this struggle and I felt like I'm failing. I'm not good at it. Why am I not good at it? Why can't I do it? Until urban sketching again, until I realized that my personality is simply like this, that I want to be finished now and tomorrow I want to do something else. And if I can get this uh, start to finish in one go idea and I can use it to come together to become something that might be useful. But I can't work on something today and then work on it tomorrow. And then it's a six month project, which would be only finished after six months. So right now I'm facing that, that dilemma because I need to put together a book proposal and I need to work on a book idea. But I'm not finishing the book proposal. I've left it at 75% and I'm just not finishing it because I just don't like I'll, I'll do anything. I'll record three podcast episodes in a week rather than spend one hour writing that book proposal because it needs iterative work and I'm just not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not giving it that headspace. It's not working for me that way. But yeah, I need, I need to do it. Now that we're on the subject, I can't think of anything else. I really need to finish my book
0: proposal. <laughs> what is
1: What What, what book? Well, uh, I've self-published before, so I showed you my book. Uh, yeah. Now I want to find a publisher for the next book that I want to make and for that, I need to send proposals to literary agents, and that's what i'm that's what I'm trying to do now. like I'm finishing up a proposal for a book about tiny people okay. for oh, yeah. uh literary agents to see, and if they like me, then they become my agents, and then they offer this book to publishers, and then I'll have okay. to start finishing up the book but wow. yeah, so I have to make a business plan for my book. And that part is sort of kind of done. Now I have to write some sample pages and I've been procrastinating for so long, so long. I think I meant to do it before we met. Like I meant to finish it before we met. Still haven't finished it.
0: Uh, You're a good talker. Maybe you should just record yourself talking through it and then type it out.
1: Yeah, yeah. I won't. I'll I'll start editing it then. I know. I've I've thought of all of these ideas.
0: You oh. need me with my with my whip.
1: So I do actually. What I really do need, act very seriously though. I need somebody who is, who plays that kind of role for me.
0: Exactly. Like yeah. I feel
1: like I need a community around my work,
0: mm-hmm. in
1: the sense that people who are doing similar things, and somebody who will be like my accountability person, or somebody who can. Yeah. Who gets what I'm trying to do and will help me get to it also, so maybe that would help i'm i'm a very I'm very tragically to my own disadvantage, very very individualistic I don't mm-hmm. work very well with other people, and mm-hmm. that's a personality flaw, but I need people, and I recognize that too
0: It's so funny, yeah, because you're so interested in people and always. Well, also as a sketcher, you look up people. You you sit in crowded crowded places. And... Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I'm i I'm very I'm very, very opinionated about how I want to do what I want to do.
0: Mm. And
1: part of writing a proposal is also, you know, not self publishing. Part of the challenge is also yeah. to understand that it's not just about you anymore and you have to you have to open up to ideas from other people about how your yep. product should look. And yes. so it's an important lesson for me to learn, to to let go in these little ways in order to make something that is really, really big. Something that really, and I feel like I've understood that, that in order to make something that's really big, it cannot be just one person on their own, completely alone.
0: Yeah, and it might become different than you intended it to be and might feel like it's, it. yeah, different might not always feel good. So
1: uh, th- right. I feel like yeah. that's at, at paranoia moment. on my part like I do yeah. I do feel exactly what you're describing but I now have the good sense to think that this is not a this is not a healthy thought it's not exactly correct right. it doesn't have to be okay. so bad
0: <laughs> Yeah yeah and it was, so what is the smell that you're following now <laughs> like what delicious food I, what, isn't the the storytelling or because I also see storytelling is also in your drawings now with the little sentences mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. Yeah. The phrases that yeah.
1: And... The latest thing is this now. So of course I'm working a l- little bit with color also now because I'm using a beige okay. uh, toned paper, but that's not yeah. that's not really the most exciting, uh, creative thing that I'm doing for in my in my opinion. In my opinion, the most exciting thing for me right now is to bring back the words into the pages. Yes. I used to be a writer first, and I now need to be a writer second, but I need to be the writer. So I need to. I'm I'm trying to re under so coming back to the Roald Dahls books, there is a place for words and there is a place for illustrations. So there is a thing words do that pictures can't, but there is a thing pictures do that words can't. Mm -hmm. And I need to find the space for both of those things in the ideas that I want to share. Not only about the podcast, but about the world that I see, about the stories I want to say, about the art that I make. Every drawing I make also has words attached to it in my mind. I might not share them. They become part of the art in some way, and therefore they are non verbally communicated. I'm best case scenario, they are communicated to the audience.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But there are things I want to say around, literally around it, that I want to put literally around it with words on the sides of the drawings.
0: Yeah, and maybe also finding a new way of doing comics.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: But, yeah.
1: Yeah. So. I'm also trying to understand that a little better, that a comic does not have to be one thing. All of these uh, boxes are breaking apart now, and it's exciting to be in this time, right? Like, you can do this in your way, and there is a way to make it successful. You just have to push. And if if you try, then it doesn't have to fit into that one specific genre, one specific box. This is a comic. No, this is a graphic novel. No, this is a novel. Like I feel like in the coming years we will see all of these definitions become more and more loose. hmm hmm
0: What I also loved like I loved the podcast you did with Emma Carlisle. Um, and she also couldn't find her place in the bookmaking world, and she just thought, like, I'm I'm just gonna draw what I love <laughs> and keep posting it, yeah. throwing it into the world. And then a publisher came and Made her do a book about uh, trees. Yeah, a wonderful, amazing, beautiful book with uh, with which is filled with exactly what she was doing: right. drawing trees, drawing nature, yeah. and actually now love- with
1: trees, you just reminded me of. Uh, I spoke last week to uh, Amy Stewart. Uh, she lives in Seattle, and uh, she is a writer. So she has written a book about plants. She's written several books about plants. And then she decided to write a series of historical fiction novels. So she's written four books about plants, three of which are New York Times bestsellers. Uh, Then she wrote a seven part series about Three Sisters in America in the 19th century. So that's seven novels that she wrote. And she's an artist and she teaches art on the side also, and she teaches writing. So I spoke to her about this and we were talking about exactly this, that, you know, she, not with her writing, not even with her art, she has never fit into those boxes. Uh, Mm. Her books on plants are not about gardening. So she doesn't fit into the gardening slash hobby section because she doesn't teach you how to make a garden. She's just telling you curious things about plants. So it's just trivia. Is it knowledge? Is it botany? Is it nonfiction? Where does it fit? There's a lot of art. So is it art? So it doesn't quite fit into one box and she Mm -hmm. refuses to fit into one box. So when she told her agent that now she wants to write about these sisters who existed in America and now she wants to write fiction around them, they thought this is insane because you have a reputation as a nonfiction writer about botany and horticulture. How can you now write historical fiction? It'd be too difficult. Why don't you stay in your lane? And she just doesn't stay in her lane. She's like, no, I want to do this. So now I'm doing this. So she talks about how important it has been in her life to push back against these uh, forces that keep trying to put her into this box or that box. Mm-hmm. And even when she's speaking with uh, publishers whom she trusts, how she has stuck to what she wanted to do, even when they have given her market advice that, you know, it it sells better if you do this or it sells better if you have a how to draw section there. And she's like, yep. no, this is what I want to do. And we are going to make this work. So it's it's been an interesting contrast. But what I'm coming to with this is that pretty much everyone that I've spoken to, I feels to me like they are people who do not fit into one box. And this is sort of the zeitgeist of our times that we don't want to. These these boxes are old. These boxes are very uh, restrictive. And mm-hmm most creative pursuits are now transcending one box. So you people don't want to be fit into one. The way we're sharing things is different, right? We're sharing art which we just drew with people all over the world on Instagram. And it used to be yeah. that an artist works on their collection for months and months before they get to show it to anybody at all. And usually those people are right around them, their ge- their geographical vicinity. So all of these standards are changing now and I'm so delighted to be able to speak to people who are not, you know, not letting the old ways restrict them. Just like you, like what you're doing is also just like that, like not being, not finding what you want in the art education in the Netherlands, seeking something else, staying true to, you know, your your well of creativity and curiosity and trying to see what works for you. And if you don't find it to make your own path, I think That is the defining characteristic of my life, this urge to make my own path. And also with this show, I'm so happy that I'm able to talk to people doing that.
0: The biggest changes in my life always came from being very angry about something that I disliked about my life. And then thinking like, oh, anger is not going to help me. Sadness is not going to help me. How can I take back control? Okay, just make a plan. Uh, on how to change this Mm -hmm. how to what is it and in that way psychology helped me because this was also what I was doing with my clients Uh, like where do you want to be and how can we get there yeah what you like to it's cognitive behavioral therapy (laughs) (laughs) what do you want to change about your behavior well let's see if we can go a bit more down the line and change your thoughts and then the behavior will come by itself, yeah. you know? <laughs>
1: maybe, maybe you can help me finish this book proposal. Why am I not able to finish this book proposal? Like I'm, I almost, like I, I agree with the anger part, you know, like so many projects also, it's like, uh, it felt like I when I, I get so angry that I'm still procrastinating and I yes. just put it out and a part of the procrastination even comes from fear. You are afraid of what someone will think. So this coming to your question initially about, you know, taking a leap of faith. I was afraid until I reached this point where I got angry about how afraid I was. And I got really angry that I was letting these people define me and define what I was going to do. And if I kept being afraid, all of these people that I was afraid of, who were just people in my life. It's not that they had already expressed this view that, oh, Nishant, you cannot do this. This is wrong. So I'm afraid that they will say this, but they haven't said it. But I'm afraid, so I won't do it. And I, I just got so angry with the idea that I'm afraid of this thing that has not happened. And who yes. knows if it will happen? Who knows if it will yes. happen at all? And I got so angry that I just, I reached this point where I was just like, you know, screw this. I am going to do what I want. I don't care anymore. And they haven't even said anything. So I'm just letting my idea of what someone might say throw yep. me into this uh, this spiral. And I was angry at myself. I was angry at this situation. I was angry at this world in which I had to apparently be this thing that I don't want to be. And then when I got sufficiently angry, the decisions became very easy. <laughs>
0: So Nishan, I am. Um, did I tell you I am colorblind?
1: Yes, you mentioned it
0: uh, a year ago. I put on those colorblind glasses. That give it's a filter that reduces the colorblindness. Oh, okay. And that was also, I uh, like my whole life got shaken because of all the big questions because i so because there's a museum in Utrecht that ha- has them and i've been putting it off for years to try them on but then my friend anna that was also in your podcast she um she asked me if i had ever considered doing it and if i if or when i would do it if she could be part of it she could be there with me and document it because she thought it was so interesting and I thought, okay, just, let's do it. Let's get it over with. <laughs> uh, and there was a fashion um, exhibition uh, going on because they, they introduced the glasses when they had a, an exhibition about color, which was years ago. So now there was this fashion exhibition. And I looked at this wall. So I put in the glasses and I looked at the wall that was, I think to me it was red. And I put the glasses on and suddenly I saw neon pink. But how do I know that this color is called neon pink the color that I see with my glasses on mm-hmm. it was just, and then I saw this red um object and I said with the glasses on and I said wow oh, that's fire truck red and my partner was there and, and and they said yeah it's fire truck red and I was like but how do I know that this is
1: exactly right no it's it's a great question it's a actually a really great question like even if somebody's two people who have no color blindness how do they know that they see the same red
0: exactly you are by but restricted
1: is... by the by your eyes like if it was different like nonetheless it is interpreted for you this way so this is your red and it will always like there there could be these what differences between exactly right what yes. is perception what? so and our eyes they use three kinds of cones to construct color so uh, mm-hmm. Like just like the RGB spectrum, you know, similarly, our eyes have three cones, like we have rods and cones and rods help Mm us in, I think, light perception. So tones, uh, light and dark and uh, cones help us with color, understanding color combinations out of those three. The praying mantis, this little insect, Mm
0: -hmm. has
1: 16 cones. Imagine so that. all the colors we see are a combination of three cones. Mm-hmm. All the colors we see are a combination of three cones. The combinations of 16 cones will create literally colors that you literally cannot imagine because mm-hmm. you can't ever see them. So you cannot, like, if a praying mantis could talk to you, it would tell you mm-hmm. what color it is, but you would never understand. Because how could you see it?
0: Exactly. There's, um, in, my, in my course, we had a masterclass on color by uh, the, the Dutch colorist, Marloes Deckers, and she um, told me, I don't remember, who, she showed me a video uh, and there's this um, culture that they don't use the word blue or purple to describe color, but feelings. Interesting. <laughs> Which, yeah yeah oh I, I should look it up what? But It was so interesting um so or i think maybe there was still color in it but like melancholy gray or a rainy day gray or something like that it was so interesting yeah
1: tell me a little bit about uh how the color blindness manifests like what kind of color blindness it is and what does it mean then for you to work with art with uh with colors in your art
0: I was also in the Dutch art school. <laughs> oh, sorry, Dutch art school system. They told me not to use color. They told me to work in black and white. They said my colors were muddy. Well, actually, they literally said I was painting diarrhea when I was painting a forest. <laughs> um, yeah. So I didn't know... I I knew I was colorblind because of when in elementary school you also need to see a doctor, like a pediatrician I think, and they have this test with the dots where you need it, where they check if you see the numbers in different colors and and I could like half of them I couldn't see, um, and they never expected it because it's very uncommon amongst girls. But my father is colorblind and my father's father and my mother's father, which gives you, I think, a 50% chance. So my sister is not colorblind. I am. Uh, and I, I, I've I, never really experienced it. I thought it was interesting <laughs> growing up. It was an interesting part of me, you know. Um, and uh, I did have trouble with. So my bike got stolen and and I reported it as a, I think I reported it as being a purple bike. And then the police phone like, yeah, we found a bike that's similar, but it's blue. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, and that's why I always thought, okay, so blue and purple are um, difficult for me. And then in art school, they told me that my colors were, were off. So because of this, this stamp, if you will, of being colorblind, I always thought, okay, so I, I won't be good with color. Color is not my thing. And then in Cambridge, we had a, a color workshop by the color tutor, Julia Doherty. Do- 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 do. And she, um, we had to do the color circle. And I told her like, yeah, I can't I can't do it because I can't see nuances. I know I, I have a difficulty with very nuanced Things to see them, and she told me to try it anyway. And then her workshop went on and on, and we had to make, we had to uh, choose a color, and then make all kinds of values of it and tones, and then we had to combine them. And she kept walking past and said, "Yeah, just go on, just go on, just move forward." And then all of a sudden, she stood behind me and she said, "Wow, this is so interesting! Look at the combinations you're making!" and <laughs> And, and she just really pushed me to keep exploring and keep exploring. But she just gave me a couple of rules that really helped me. Like always put light and dark next to each other. Try to think of complementary color uh, colors and match them together. So I, I well, yeah, I, I've used this set of rules since then, which have really helped me. And now people always tell me that my colors are so fantastic. And the funny thing is that when I put on these uh, glasses in the museum, Anna was filming the the whole time. She said, I want to film you when you look at your own work. (laughs) So I put these glasses on and I looked at my own work and I was like, Oh, this is amazing. (laughs) I, uh, because I, I think I don't experience my work as using very bold colors. But they apparently are very bold, very bright. And so I always thought I couldn't see blue that well. But when I put on the glasses, it turns out that that there was this whole pink and red spectrum that I apparently can't see. Or, well, I've also dived into a lot of scientific research about the glasses and it's still quite, uh, there's a lot of discussion about them because it's only a blue filter that you put in front of your eyes. Still, yeah, and research is difficult because it's all about perception. You can't measure cones and the influence of the cones. But, well, my spectrum is smaller and I did did notice, which made me actually really sad, that pigeons have the most beautiful pink feet. And I do know that I see them more grayish because that's something I could check with Anna and my partner there. And that made me really sad. I had to, I also use, if you look up the glasses on YouTube, you see a lot of people crying. I also really cried a lot. <laughs> because it also makes you feel like all of a sudden, that's why I hesitated doing the whole experiment. Because you you know that like, oh, I'm missing something that I, I didn't know I was missing before. And now I have them. so my family... My father also cried seeing the video and he doesn't want to do it, but he, um, uh, so my sister and him, they had a little crowdfunding and they gave me part of the money to buy the glasses for myself. <laughs> my So the video material um, uh, made them emotional and it touched them so much, but I haven't bought them because I still don't know if I want to have them. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah
0: it's a, it's a, yeah
1: it's a good question like i i think it's i i wonder if it's like if it doesn't like impede you like for example traffic lights if you don't have trouble with that kind of functional uh, oh. behavior in your world then mm-hmm. i wonder if it is right to do this because well people listen differently there are people who can't hear low pitch there are people who can't hear the yeah. same high pitch should they be quote unquote corrected uh, i don't i have i wear glasses so i don't see clearly at a distance so is it necessary that i have corrective surgery i can see why i need to wear glasses because otherwise i am an i can't drive for example and i can't recognize people across the road so that's not good but uh, there are so many of these uh facts and there are also cultural factors so i was recently reading this book and it was about on the subject of traffic lights it was saying how in certain countries so in japan in, in this example they were talking about japan they did not for the longest time have a distinction between blue and green as separate colors. So green was considered a shade of blue and there was no word for green. And the word for green, which is Midori, is a relatively new word that has been formed. So even the Mm. traffic lights would be red, yellow, blue. And Mm -hmm. uh, they would be called that as well. They would not be thought of as green. You can be in a culture in which you don't even look at the color as a green color. You see it as a shade like your shirt right now could be considered a shade of blue yeah and that's just a cultural practice nothing to do with biology Mm -hmm. and that can think about what a profound change it is in somebody's way of looking at the world looking at like if if the the trees and the sky were just different shades of the same color that's such an interesting thought to me
0: oh that was that was my biggest fear that i like that I would see nature differently, but there was no change in the spectrum there, which was a relief. <laughs> I did, so, but I did, so because I was in a museum, I also, I went into the art room to look at the, like the old masters. And I, uh, and, and that also shocked me because it was actually quite different. So I was thinking like I could get the glasses just when I would visit a museum, I would put them on. Putting them on also makes. I think it would still make me very sad because every time I would feel like, oh yeah, this is what I'm missing out on, or something. Yeah, I don't. Or there's something wrong with my eyes, or I don't know. Yeah. The
1: idea that you're missing out already is, it yeah. feels unnecessary. No, like it isn't it possible to think that you are seeing something that other people don't see? Yes. And who said that it has to be seen in this one way? Like. Even uh, like Van Gogh, he was said to be colorblind in some ways, right?
0: Exactly, yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we
1: are not seeing the colors he saw. So is he yeah. wrong or are we wrong?
0: Maybe we are using... Vincent and I. <laughs> 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 Maybe we are using bolder colors because we, you know, we experience the world so much grayer. Yeah,
1: yeah Vincent yeah. and you. We
0: need, yeah, we need the bolder colors to to make more fun of her gray world. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I do remember watching like an educational program for children when I was a child. Like literally showing the spectrum of a non-colored light person and then the spectrum of a colored light pers- person. And I really, that was what okay. I remember. was like, oh yeah, oh, I'm seeing it so much grayer. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then that was what i was crying about in the video is also i was i saw the pigeon feet and i was saying why aren't you people happier (laughs) you can see these gorgeous pigeon feet every day why is there still depression you could see pigeon
1: (laughs) how can there be war in a world with pink pigeon feet
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs)
1: So completely unrelated book recommendation. Um, I've heard of this book. I've been meaning to read it. It's called Immense World. Uh, it's by this author called Ed Yong, Y-O-N-G. And uh, it's about uh, non-human sensory perception. So how does the non-human world perceive the world? So plants, animals, birds included. And it's uh, yep. everybody who has read it. In My Circle has said only incredible things about it, so I'm happy to recommend it, but I haven't read it myself yet. I've been meaning to. Well, so <laughs> uh, we've, we've had a lovely chat and I'm so thankful for oh, your time. Um
0: good time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Ellen, for joining me. I'm so excited to share with people not only what you do, how you've come to do those things, but also the fact that this academy exists and that hopefully more like it can exist and that people around you can come and study with you and learn so many things to equip themselves in so many wonderful ways to become artists illustrators
0: thank you so much nisham for this lovely time yeah i had a lovely conversation with you thank you so nice